We're glad to be sharing the ministry of Redemption Church with you. Now join us as we receive the Word of God. Somehow we're Redemption Church in Plano, Texas, and we're so glad to know every one of you. Please reach out to us. We are uh, in our brand new series. I won't call it a sermon series because it's a little different. It's our questions and answers series. And over the next few weeks, we're going to be taking your questions and doing our best to give you answers to your questions from the Word of God. Uh, We have an anonymous text line where you can send your questions. It's not too late to get your questions in. 214-856-0550. That's our anonymous text line. 214-856-0550. Please, no more questions about where my wardrobe comes from. I, I just feel like that is just, you know, uh, taking the attention off the Lord as it should. And also, it kind of hurt my feelings that no one actually taking me up on those questions. Just kidding. We've got some questions, and we're just going to shoot them right at you, and we're going to do our best to answer them. How does that sound today? Well, let's start. First question. Here it goes. Is the Bible clear on what happens to those that pass on before the great judgment day? Do we just sleep? Until then, possible that some wander around here on earth or some other holding area. This is a great question. And we've got a scripture that we're going to be looking at real quick. But there's there's a lot of things that aren't uh, completely known by by a lot of people. I'll introduce you to a word. It's called Sheol. Everyone said Sheol. Sheol is a Hebrew word. And it's it it refers to a place beyond the life. So it's it's an afterlife type place. But it's not like the lake of fire, and it's not heaven. Okay, get it? It's a holding place for the spirit, holding place for the spirit. So get this picture. Someone dies, right? They just, they're just right there, right? That is a body right there. We see a human body, right? That's physical. That is dead, and that goes down into the earth, right? But there's there's more to a person than just their body. There is a spirit, and then there's also a soul. We won't talk about the soul right now, but we will talk about the spirit. So we believe, and we're, we're, we're uh, showed things in Scripture, that there's a place called Sheol. There's other names uh, also, uh, like uh, the bosom of Abraham. Bosom of Abraham, when Jesus is talking about uh, the rich man and Lazarus, that story, he talks about the bosom of Abraham. So, and we're painted a little picture uh, beyond this realm of living life here in that story. The the rich man he goes to a holding place. We don't. We aren't certain. We don't believe that it's the lake of fire or the thing you think of as hell. All right, but we believe that he is aware of certain things and he's able to think certain things and he's even able to ask for certain things. He is even somehow able to see who? Lazarus. He's able to see Lazarus. And so that's, that's really interesting. So there is, there is a lot more uh, to existence than life. And sometimes we, we forget that fact. When someone dies, we think that's all that there is. Because that's all we can see. But don't you know that the Bible is very clear that faith is not by sight. And that the things that are eternal are not seen. Isn't that what the scripture says? It's absolutely what the scripture says. 
Uh, so there was a little bit of an answer there, but let's go straight to Scripture. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and we're going to look at verse 13. 1 Thessalonians 4 and verse 13. You get that pulled up? Let me know. There it is. But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep. All right, so it's saying asleep there. Now, that's not like normal, like you go to bed at 10 p.m., and your Alexa alarm or your phone wakes you up at 6 a.m., right? It's not that. No, it's, it's the term that Jesus uses for, for death. But he says it's a, death is a lot like sleep. Why is it a lot like sleep? Because one day that body is going to wake up. Every person that dies is going to awaken. Scripture is very clear. They're either going to awaken to everlasting life or everlasting torment all right and i think you know let, let's just do a little test everlasting life that sounds like heaven very good everlasting torment that sounds like irving texas that's right jokes about irving we love you irving wherever you are all right <laughs> so reading on they sleep in death so there is this uh, one version so this is king james version niv says those who sleep in death reading on that you sorrow not, even as others which have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Am I in the right church today that believes that Jesus died and rose again? Excellent. Even so them also which sleep in Jesus will God bring with him. So there are those that sleep in Jesus, all right? That is, that is somebody who, who is no longer with us, but their full faith is in Jesus Christ. Their heart is, they are born again. They are filled with the Spirit. All of their sins are washed away. Their name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There's a lot of ways to say this, but they are connected, and they belong to Jesus, and they still belong to Jesus even when their heart stops beating. And God will bring with him these people. Next verse, verse 15. Verse 15, for this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. Man, you pick King James Version. All right, so what NIV says it like this. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left unto the coming of the Lord, will certainly not proceed those that have fallen asleep. So this is important. So he's talking about, are they already, are they like beating us because they already died? Are they beating us to the place, right? Which that could work in some negative ways. Well, like, well, I'm going to go ahead and punch my ticket right now and like off myself. That's not it. No, he's saying here that they will not proceed us in coming to the Lord. All right. They will not proceed us. Verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ, they shall rise first. Now, those that are dead in Christ, they're going to rise first, all right? And then, it's like right afterwards, this is going to happen. For the Lord himself, very next verse, 17. Verse 17, after that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. So they're here, and then we're here, and we are with them. Some of you have a grandmother who the, her faith is in Jesus Christ. I want to give you some hope that the next time you see her, she's going to rise, and then you are, boom, with 
her with the Lord forever. And so we will be with the Lord forever. And where are we going to meet? We're going to meet him in the air. And then uh, looking on uh, verse 18. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. These are encouraging words. These are encouraging words. So I don't believe any of this uh, point points us to uh, wandering spirits on the earth, right? Which is a great Hollywood uh, theme, right? It's a great scary story thing, right? Oh, there's a scary movie, right? Amityville horror kind of thing. There's a, there's a ghost hidden somewhere. Oh, it's a, is a disgruntled person still has work to do or revengeance to get. Like, you know these movies, right? You know these stories, right? Uh, the conjuring kind of thing. It's, it's all over the place. All right. That is nowhere in there. Those spirits, the, the, the bodies right here, the spirits there, and they are in a holding place until the Lord calls them forward. All right. The Lord is going to call forward his people first. But eventually, everyone is going to be called for a great white throne judgment. I'm very uh, certain about that. That's that's very clear in Scripture. Uh, it's also believed that everyone's body comes right back to their spirit. And you are, boom, back together again. You, you will have a different body, a glorified body. These are things that we can talk about. All right. I hope that answers every one of your questions. It is good to think about heaven. We don't think enough about heaven. Can I tell you something? Can I tell? Um, we're about to cover it in a little bit, but uh, it, when you are going through tough times, think about heaven. Why? It's encouraging. Encourage one another with these words. All right. Encourage. On your worst day, you can still think about heaven, and heaven is still yours on the worst day. Anybody have a worst day recently? I've had some worst days recently, but heaven is still mine. Heaven is still for me, and I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters. Heaven is still ours because Jesus Christ died, was buried, and rose again. Our next question is this. It's along those same lines. How do I find comfort and peace when I have lost a loved one to death? That's a great question. That's a really important question. I want to go straight to Scripture on it. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Father of compassion and the God of all, what? Comfort. He's the God of all comfort. Every kind of comfort that there is, God is the God of comfort. Who comforts us in all our troubles. Every kind of trouble he comforts us in so that we can what check this out comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive from God so guess what when God comforts you it doesn't just go somewhere and you go oh that was really good and now I'm going to move on no you hold on to that comfort and now you give it to somebody else that very same comfort I notice you're going through a problem hey I want to comfort you you're going to make it and I want to give you more than words. Maybe we hang out. Maybe we talk. Maybe I just listen to you vent. Maybe we go through it all together. Maybe we pray together. But I'm going to take the comfort that came from where? The God of all comfort. And now I'm going to give it to you. This is a wonderful plan right here. Um, verse 5. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ. That's a very important thing to know. That we, we share in the sufferings of Christ. If you are suffering, it doesn't mean you're out of the will of God. All right? Anybody that tells you that is missing it. 
No, we actually share in the sufferings of Jesus Christ. The next part. So also our comfort abounds through Christ. So what, what do I want to underline here? We've got the God of all comfort and comfort abounds through Jesus Christ. And then we're comforted so that we comfort those in any trouble. So this is great. Now, if you are in, you are needing comfort, you go straight to God. And your comfort abounds through Christ. That means the more you worship Christ, the more you talk about Christ, the more you think like Christ, walk like Christ, the more you say, Christ said this and I believe it. That's the more comfort abounds. And then the more you are around fellow Christians who have been through trouble. I'm telling you, sometimes you hang out with the wrong people who have never faced trouble. Now, listen, they might not be as glitzy and glamorous like our, us war-torn people. But us war-torn people know where safety is. And we know how to run for our lives when the enemy's behind us. And we know how to but get down in the bunker of prayer and pull ourselves through. You got to be with the right people, right? Okay. My gosh, all these people with all their fancy clothes going to church. No, give me that church mother that's been through prayer and she's got tear marks on her face where she's cried out for her children. Give me that person. That's the person you need to go get comfort for. All right. Amen on that. Oh, church mothers, love them. All right. A life in Christ is not problem free. That's the other thing you need. A life in Christ is not problem free. And that's why we need God. That's why we need Jesus. That's why we need each other. We've got to have one another. In, in this same chapter, we'll go to verse 8 now. 2 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, verse 8. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about the troubles we experienced in the province of Asia. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure, so that we despaired of life itself. Does that sound pretty heavy? I don't know what was going on in the province of Asia, but it was not fun. It was not BBS, right? It was not, it was not a good time, right? It wasn't some wonderful little, oh, God just wants to bless you and give you a hug. That's all God wants from you, that kind of sermon. It wasn't that. No, they were going through some serious, awful times. So that these people of faith actually despaired of life itself. Can I give you just a moment? You have permission to despair every once in a while. Can we stop doing this? If somebody's having a hard time and they say, I'm having a hard time, stop hitting them with the Bible saying, you don't have enough faith. Stop that. Has anybody ever received that from a brother or sister? Cut it out. Don't do that. I don't know, man. I'm having trouble. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to think. Well, the problem is you don't have enough faith. And it's like, well, I came to church. I'm doing my best. I, I read my Bible, and I don't understand why I prayed this and this happened. Let me tell you, you have permission sometimes to despair. Life is that hard, right? This is Paul talking here. This is the guy who taught us all about faith. This is the guy who taught us all about going up to heaven, a third heaven. He talked about unbelievable mysteries of God. And sometimes things happen that were just so horrendous, it just made him despair. I'm good to know that. Anybody glad to know that? 
Can I tell you, I have been, I have been through it the last month. I've been through some things that made me just discouraged, made me disappointed, made me uh, despair. They made me worry. They made me worry for my wife. They made me worry for my children. I was worried about it. I didn't enjoy it. And here's what you should not do. You shouldn't just walk around and somebody says, well, how are you doing? And you go, oh, I'm blessed and highly favored. So wonderful. You know, I'm walking on cloud nine. You know what you call that? You call that a lie. But here's the other problem. A church, listen here, church folks. <laughs> I love you guys, but I'm going to help you here. We, if you're going to ask, how are you doing? You need to be prepared to hear the truth. You need to be prepared to hear the truth. And you ask, so don't just push it aside when somebody starts unraveling and saying, I'm not doing well. I'm really worried. If you, if you are going to ask, how are you doing just to fill the space, stop that. Stop that, okay? And there are people that need someone to say, they, they need someone to go to and say, I'm not doing well. I am really struggling. I'm really hurting. I'm really confused, all right? And they get to do that. And guess what? The body of Christ, you are supposed to deliver comfort to them that you receive from the Lord yourself, all right? All of that is absolutely 100% true. And this is all true in the idea, of especially of losing someone, because that is absolutely despaired of someone. It is absolutely hurt, hurting, hurtful to lose someone. I've got a friend in this church. Less than a year ago, we lost him, and it still hurts me today. There are, there are very few days that go by where I don't just utterly say it out loud. I say, Ackley, I miss you. I miss my buddy Ackley. I miss him. I miss him. I don't just miss him because he was just so handy. I miss his, being his friend. I miss being right there with him. I miss him. I miss Ackley. It is okay to miss these people, and it is okay to even fall in these things verse 9 indeed we felt we had received the sentence of death but here's the last get this but this happened get it this happened that we might not rely on ourselves but on God who raises I'm, let me tell you if you're going through heartache and Pain and sorrow over the loss of a loved one. That is so natural. That is so understandable. But I want to tell you what, what can happen. Is that you can learn not to rely on yourself. Not rely on your own thoughts. Not rely on your ability to, to distract yourself. Or to go into escapism through drinking. Through social media. Or through clubbing. Or through drugs. Or through endless Netflix like all these escape things. No, that's you trying to run away from it. You Sometimes these things happen that we might not rely on ourselves, but on God and why God, he raises the dead. You who have lost someone, can I tell you, stop relying on yourself and rely on a God who raises the dead. You have a wonderful promise that we will see Ackley again because we serve a God who raises the dead. Hallelujah. Somebody clap some more for that because that's the best news ever. I don't know better news than that. It's the best news. Rely on God who raises the dead. Uh, last, I will say this. 
make the resurrection your centerpiece. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this. He says that without the resurrection, we are to be pitied above all people. Our faith is futile. We are, we are just the most miserable people without the resurrection. So guess what? You believe in the resurrection, right? Guess what? It's not enough to just believe in the resurrection. You need to put it right in the center of your belief, right? It's not just a peripheral thing you believe, right? Right? I, I believe, like, more peripherally, uh, some things about God, like, you know, he fed the multitude right there. You know, he, he broke the bread and he gave it, you know, stuff like that. That's what the fact that he raised from the dead is the center of my faith. And so you need to make the resurrection the centerpiece of your faith. And when those sorrows come about that person, you get to have those sorrows. I don't know. You might never in this life be free from those sorrows. But at the same time, same time there is being a centerpiece. Now you redirect everything to the very center of your faith. And that is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. And when you start feeling sad, when you start feeling worried about those things, start rejoicing in the resurrection. Start rejoicing that Jesus Christ said, I am the resurrection and the life. Rejoice in those things. So make the resurrection your centerpiece. That's some good, that's some good advice right there. Next question. I have, on oh, this one's a doozy. Get ready. All right. Uh, Y'all let me have it. I like it. I have always been taught that when Jesus came, he did away with the law. So you got the law, Jesus comes and it's like, gone, right? Uh, Is that true, question mark? I thought he came to fulfill the law. Does that mean we don't have to keep the OT law, the Old Testament law? All right, so let's just jump right into scripture here. Matthew chapter 5 is the the verse uh, that everybody uh, is thinking about here, verse 17. Do not think, Jesus says, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So you've got the law of the Old Testament, a bunch of commands, a bunch of them. And then you've got the prophets and all their prophecy and all their commands that came straight from God. So the law, it came straight from God, and the prophecy came straight from God. Agreed, right? All right. Okay. So all of those things, Jesus Christ, I've not come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. And Jesus Christ will fulfill every one of those prophecies. Do you agree with that? Well, then the other you need to agree too that Jesus Christ will also fulfill the law commands, every one of them. All right? Does that make sense so far? All right. Moving on, verse 18. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Uh, King James Version says jot or tittle. Jot is like, if you ever look at Hebrew, it's like the, it looks like a little apostrophe thing. And then a tittle is like a weird little thing. It's like an overlap line. It's like one of the smallest little pin strokes in, in Judaism. It's like, you see this right here that's like a little angle right there? Well, uh, a, a, a tittle would just be a little overlapping down like that little small overlap it's called a tittle really small and it's saying the smallest little scribbly writing of my law is not going anywhere it's not going to go anywhere it's not going to 
pass away. It's not going to disappear until everything is accomplished. So now there's an until, until everything is accomplished. Verse 19, therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So there's a few things I want to address here. I think it's really good. Um, number one, we are not to supposed to look any at any part of the Bible and go, Cup, yeah, but that's that. Yeah. Well, let's go to this part, right? And, you know, we get that way, right? We were like, I want this verse because this Makes me feel good about myself, right? This verse says I'm, I'm promised great things. That verse says I need to repent or I'm really going to be in trouble. Well, let's not talk about that one, right? No, no. Every word of God is true. The Bible says that. Let every man be a liar. Let every word of God be true. That's what the word says. So we, we need to accept and receive all the word of God understand all the word of God, love all of the word of God, even the parts of the Bible that don't seem to speak it to you in that moment, right? There's some parts of the Bible that are very uh, uh, monotonous, like, and the height of it was three cubits, and the width of it was 12 cubits, and the depth of it was 12 cubits, and Eli Heshar Shinar uh, and his son, Shanuki Dukis, was, was, and it's like all these names, and you're like, what in the world? I don't think I nailed those names. And uh, you know, it's hard to understand that, right? Like, what is this trying to say? Let me tell you, there was so much depth in the word of God that that, what you just passed over and thought wasn't important, is powerful. And the more you look into it, the more it's absolutely true. Because the word of God is more than words on a page. Jesus says it all. Oh, he says, my words are spirit and they are life. Somebody say it, spirit and life. All right. You want spirit and life? Then you want the word of God. Every part of the word of God. I know a lot of Christians that want to stay out of revelation. Like, oh, it just confuses me. No, it's spirit and it's life. Get in it. Get in it. Get in it. Leviticus, I just don't understand all this stuff in Leviticus. Get in it. It's spirit and it's life, and you better believe it. Better believe it. All right. And then verse 20, Pharisees, he brings up the Pharisees, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. Didn't the Pharisees think that they were absolutely keeping the law? Didn't they actually, like, like pat themselves on the back, say, ha, ha. We're keeping the law. It's a Jesus guy that's not keeping the law. Isn't that what they do? They're like, oh, John the Baptist and his people. Oh, look, we're the ones that are really keeping the law. That's what the Pharisees do. And what does Jesus do? He does more than just throw shade at them. He really lets them have it. The Pharisees thought they were fulfilling the law, but Jesus says they weren't doing it right. They weren't doing it correctly. So listen, if you're going to keep the word of God and the command of God, do not do it like a Pharisee. Do not do it like a Pharisee that goes, well, I'm keeping it, but that Kathy, oh, gosh, she needs to read the Bible or two, right? No, that's, that's what the Pharisees do. Do not be like the Pharisees. Now, here's the next thing. The Pharisees didn't keep the law perfectly. Moses didn't keep the law perfectly. David didn't keep the law perfectly. There is only one who ever kept the law perfectly. Maybe you've heard of him. His name is 
Jesus. Jesus is the one who kept the law perfectly. So guess what? When that is true, then all of us are lawbreakers, and none of us have a right to brag and be a Pharisee, right? So break that. Break that right now. You Just let go of that Pharisee. Pharisees don't come to the altar. But healed Pharisees, they are healed by coming to the altar, bearing their heads down and say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Guess what happens in the following verses? Jesus then takes things that are very much the law and he expands them. He talks about murder and murder is not just like shower scene in psycho. Murder is also hatred in your heart. And he says, uh, he has, teaches about adultery and he expands it from not just being uh, unfaithful to uh, your spouse, but also having lust in your heart. And then he has, he ends the chapter with one of the craziest things that is still something we're all working on. He says to love your enemies. And all of this stuff is something that the Pharisees weren't doing. All of this stuff is what you need to do for your righteousness to surpass the Pharisees. Wouldn't you agree? That's the context. All right. Uh, next, look at this, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. This is how you keep God's command. I'm going to make it easy for you. Who needs it easy? Who needs 614 uh, laws? Does that sound easy? Let me make it less complicated. Here it is, 1 Corinthians 5, 14. God will judge those outside by 14. 5, 14. 1 Corinthians 5, 14. I will read that. For the love of Christ constraineth us. If it's not the right verse, get it off the screen. Uh, it's 514. 1 Corinthians 5.14. All right. For the love of Christ constraineth us. Everyone say constraineth. Do you know what it means to be constrained? Anybody know what it means to be constrained? If I have handcuffs on, I'm constrained. I'm it keeps me from doing this, right? I'm being constrained. So what, what one, one, one of the concepts is that you have all these laws that are constraining, and that's what a lot of people think, that the law is what's keeping us. I would murder you, except, you know, the law says thou shalt not. Yeah. I would totally steal your car, Charles, except God said thou shalt not steal. Right. I would totally tell my dad off right now, except what is that? That is letting the law constrain you. But now what does the scripture say? It says that in the King James Version, for the love of Christ constrains us. So what does this mean? This means that now we are letting love keep us from murder. Love keeping us from stealing. We aren't going to take the Lord's name in vain. And it's not just because it's written on a tablet, but because love keeps us from doing these things. And let me tell you, isn't that better? I, who, what, what would sound better uh, if, if my wife was so afraid of me, so afraid of my anger that she woke up early in the morning and made me eggs? And I walk in and I go, oh, you made eggs. And she's like, oh, please don't hit me. Is that, does that sound like a great relationship? Well, some people have that kind of idea of a relationship with God. and It doesn't work. But wouldn't it be so much better if my, if my wife loved me so much that she got up before I got up and I woke up and I went in there and she said, hey, I just love you so much. I wanted to do something to you. 
here's some hay. Which one would you choose? Ultimately, that is what is supposed to be working in our life. Love. Love is supposed to be working in our life. Does this make sense? I hope it does. Going on in Matthew 22 and 40, the Lord tells us this, that all the law and prophets, isn't that the subject at hand? The law and the prophets, right? That's what Jesus says. All the law and prophets hang on the command to love. Love God with all your heart, your mind, soul, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. So what is this? This is changing the motivation from keeping the law because you're afraid of what would happen if you broke the law to loving God. And that is absolutely where where we're supposed to be in this situation. If we're keeping every little minute law but not growing in a love to God, Jesus would tell us that our, our righteousness is not exceeding the Pharisees. The law reveals we are sinners. It's nothing you know about the law. Why the law? Here's one thing Romans 7, 7 teaches us this. Galatians 3, 19 is another one. The law reveals that we are sinners in need of the Savior. Because there's a law and we know we haven't kept it, we know that we are sinners in need of the Savior. Now that the Savior has come, we have an answer for our sin. You know that the law has actually no answer really for your sin? The best the law could tell you is to kill a bull or, or a dove or, you know, a lamb and push forward your, your, your sin. Next, next year, you'll have to do it again. Next time you fail again, you'll have to do it again. But now that the Savior has come, Jesus Christ, we have an answer for our sin and a loving relationship with the one who actually gave the holy commands. Jesus Christ is that same God who wrote in the stone. The law does not rule our life, but the lawgiver has become our king, and we love him. We're serving him not because we're afraid of him, but because we love him. And because we love him, we keep his commands. That's actually the next question. We'll get to that one in a second. There is a big difference in being free from our legal indebtedness to the law. Everyone say legal indebtedness. And doing away with the law of the Lord. So Colossians 2.14 says this. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness. Which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away. Nailing to the cross. What is that saying? It's saying your shortcomings of the law have all been nailed to the cross. It does not however say that the law has been nailed to the cross. The law has not been nailed to a cross. You are still very much a sinner. But thankfully, the Savior has come, and now you have someone that can redeem you from the curse of sin, which is death. All right. All right, next question. That was a lot. Uh, Is, if you love me, you will keep my commandments, part of the Ten Commandments. Well, this is something Jesus said, John uh, 14 and 15. And uh, Jesus is that same God who gave the commandments in Exodus, we, we believe that. And Jesus also gives us a new commandment. John 14 and 34. He says, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. I, Jesus really expands something here. Because Jesus, I mean, the Old Testament 
Deuteronomy tells us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then it tells us in Leviticus to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. Both those things are things none of us have done fully. Only the Lord Jesus have, has really ever done these things. We're still trying, falling short. But this Jesus right here, he says, love one another, not as yourself, but to love one another as I have loved you. That's a much bigger task, I think. It's one thing, if I, you know, I, what I'll do for me, I'll do for you. I'll buy you a sandwich. Right, I was going to buy a sandwich. Now I'll buy you a sandwich. Let's go have a sandwich. Right, that's loving me. That's loving your neighbor as you love yourself. But Jesus Christ did more than buy a sandwich. Jesus Christ actually refused to love himself. To love you. Jesus actually suffered to love you. And that's the depth that Jesus is saying: Love one another as I have loved you. Be willing to lose it all. For someone else. You see how bigger that is? What a bigger thing. But that's Jesus' command. Has anybody come close to living that one out yet? No, we haven't. Thank goodness we have a Savior, right? That's, that's walking and talking with us. Jesus is showing us the motivation for obedience. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. So the motivation here is love. The motivation is not, well, I'll do this thing and then God will bless me. I'll do this thing and I'll do it so well, then I'll become a preacher and then I'll have a mega church. That's it. No, no, that's not it at all. No, it's a, the, it, the obedience is done out of the motivation of love. Let everything be done in love. Doesn't the Bible say that the greatest of all is love? There are only three things that are going to transfer from this world to the next one. It's in 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope, and Love. And so guess what? If we're talking about the commandments of God and, and obeying the word of God, we need to do it in these three things. Faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. I hope that simplifies it. We need to simplify some things. The, the, the way the Pharisees went around that was really complicated, wasn't it? Yeah. I'm so complicated they're willing to stone people right there on the street. Really complicated. Jesus shows us a less complicated way when he says, all right, whoever's without sin, cast the first stone. He really made it very less complicated. He revealed we were all sinners and that what we would do so much better is to love and restore the woman that's on the street. Next question. I would like to know if there is anywhere in the King James or uh, the Bible, uh, New Testament, Old Testament, anywhere in the Bible, where it says we can be little gods for Jesus or for Christ. Thank you. All right. So uh, there is a verse. Are you aware of the verse that says ye are gods? Are you aware of that verse? Are aware of the verse? There's actually a church just down the road that just closed. They had a big uh, sign on the front of their uh, their church there. And their, their theme of the year said, I am a god. I kid you not. I took a picture of it. That was their theme of the year. Come to our church. We're gonna we're gonna preach to you, and you're gonna be a god by the end of time, by the end of the year, right? That's our message for 2022. I don't know how they were preaching that, but that gets really weird, doesn't doesn't it? There are actually some 
faiths out there, faiths, um, some of them knock on your door, and what they believe is that you, if you will uh, join the Latter-day Saints, that you will become a god. And that then you will be able to have your own planet, just like God had this one. Which means that, that do, do some thinking there. Then that means that God is not really the true God. He's a God that won the contest last go around. And that Jesus, they believe that Jesus is winner of this contest. And he's going, and then you can win the contest too. And it gets really weird really quick. Well, let me tell you, how many gods, how many true gods are there? There's one. There are many, 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 many countless false gods, right? But there is one true God. And beside him, there is no other. No one else gets the glory. There is none other that is God. He is. There is one God, just one God. All right. So, but Jesus says this. So let's dig in. Dig in. John chapter 10, verse 31. Again, his Jewish opponents picked up stones to stone him. It's one of my favorite quotes from Jesus, verse 32. But Jesus said to them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? Sometimes I say that when people are really getting on my case. I, I sometimes, Jeff, I go, for which of these good works are you attacking me right now? I'm doing such good I really like it. No one else liked it. But I like it. Verse 33. We are not stoning you for any good work, they replied, these are the Pharisees, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law, I have said, you are gods. There it is, you are gods. Verse 35, if he called them gods, to whom the word of God came, and scripture cannot be said. Aside, so this is a complex, complex little issue. We're gonna get believe who believes we can get a resolution. Two people, all right, y'all, y'all all need to pray then that, that we get to a resolution. All right, it's complex. Is Jesus saying we are gods? Is that what is that? It, so some people, I, and I'm not telling you just like little churches around local. Like I've heard televangelists, big churches that 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 are in the thousands. I've heard their pastor get up and preach this very thing I'm about to say. They will preach that that they said, listen, Jesus, we're mad at you because you're you're claiming to be God. And that Jesus is saying, well, not only am I a God, you're a God too. And that's what that's how they're I've heard preachers, well-known preachers, say these things. All right. So will we become gods? Is there big God and lower case G gods? Is that what's going on here? All right. And like we're better than everyone else. We're we're lowercase gods. Serve the uppercase God. Is that what's going on? I want to tell you, it's not going on. Are you, are you relieved? Are you relieved? That's how it's going on. Let me tell you, I don't know much, but I, I, one of the keys to life I've learned, here it is. Here's the key to life. Uh, there is a God, and I am not him. All right, y'all dig that? Yeah. Uh, there is a God, and we're not him. We, 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 okay. So what does Jesus mean? Well, Jesus is quoting scripture, isn't he? He says, isn't it written in your law? So what scripture is he, is he quoting? And this is a way to read your Bible. Whenever there's a question, it's probably something you're missing. And if Jesus is quoting something, guess what? It could be that you need to know what he's quoting. 
And so is the case here. Psalm 82 and beginning at verse 1. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the gods. Whoa, so now there's gods. What? What is going on? Wait. Verse 2. How long will you defend the unjust and show partiality to the wicked? So does verse 2 sound like these people are, are in God's favor here or not doing good? Keep it, keep it back up, that, that verse. I want them to say. Verse 2, does it look like God is happy with these people or kind of upset with these people? Upset with these people, right? Because they are defending the unjust and they show partiality to the wicked. All right, so the word for gods we need to understand in the Hebrew, it is the word Elohim. Now let's show up this beautiful uh, bean footage here. Here's a picture. This came, it's a screen grab right off the internet. This is Blue Letter Bible. Uh, and we, we can pick up uh, the Hebrew word, and the, the Hebrew word here is Elohim. It's the, it's the most generic word for God in the Old Testament. And so this word is really uh, useful in a lot of ways. Uh, sometimes it means the one true God, Elohim is that generic, that it also can mean false gods, like Dagon is called Elohim, that's a false god. Uh, they can uh, name a lot of uh, false gods. They even can name angels and call them at one point Elohim. And I want to point to you something uh, right here. They can also refer to rulers and judges as Elohim. So the question is, <laughs> we've got a like we got a laundry list of what Elohim can mean. What does Elohim mean? Does it mean a big deity, a, a, like a half deity or something? Or does it actually mean a human ruler, a human judge? So where do you think we're going with it? Well, the question is, does that fit the context? Well, according to verse 1, the context here is judges. Pull up verse 1, one more time, 82 and 1. God presides in the great assembly. He renders judgment among the judges. Elohim. He renders judgment among the Elohim, which could mean judgment. For, uh, King James Version, I believe this is NIV. King James Version uh, reads this way in verse 2. It says uh, that these Elohim judge unjustly. So what we're dealing here is with judges who God's mad at. And Jesus is calling the Pharisees judges that God is mad at. Now, does that fit the context of John 10 that we just read? Yeah, it does. Uh, reading on uh, Psalm 82, verse 3, we'll just read it all. And these are things, number one, when Jesus quotes a verse to people that know the Bible, they not only know his quote, they know the entire chapter. So this is the stinging rebuke that came down on the Pharisees when he said, ye are Elohim. Here it is. Verse 3, defend the weak. Now, stop me. Were the Pharisees defending the weak? No. They were accusing the weak. They were robbing the weak. Um, and the fatherless uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed. They didn't do it. Verse 4, rescue the weak and the weedy, needy. Uh, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They weren't doing it. Verse 5, the gods, Elohim, know nothing. They understand nothing. Pharisees. <laughs> they walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Verse 6, I said, you are Elohim. You are gods. You are all sons of the Most High. 
But, verse 7, you will die like mere mortals. You will fall like every other ruler. Rise up, O God. Judge the earth, for all the nations are your inheritance. So, the gods, the Elohim of Psalm 82, are not spoken about positively by the, the true God. So, when Jesus uses this quote from Psalm 82, it's the same context. He's not saying something positive about them. He's not saying, listen, I'm God, but you know what? You are gods too. Cool. No, he's saying, you bunch of losers. Did you read Psalm 82? Because th that's the mirror right now. That's what you look like right now. All right. He is not telling the Pharisees that they're going to be gods. He's telling them that they are the judges that God is mad at in Psalm 82. Make sense? Are you there? You got you to gotta understand the word of God. All right. And that's where a lot of people get, get uh Get in trouble with the word of God. Let me tell you, you can't stay surface with the word of God. He calls you deeper. You can't stay surface in worship. He calls you deeper. You can't stay surface in prayer. He calls you deeper. Anybody want to go deeper? Lord, take us deeper. Oh, the context is that Jesus is calling the Pharisees the unjust judges of Psalm 82. And guess what? Do you think the Pharisees understood their point? Understood his point. Yeah, they tried to grab him. They tried to take him and kill him right there. But he got out of their grasp. Lord Jesus. We do not become gods. But guess what? We do become judges and rulers in the one true God's kingdom. First Corinthians 6.3 says this. Do you not know how much that, that we will judge angels? The believers of God that are powerful in the Lord. They will actually judge angels in God's kingdom. How much more the things of this life? Next question. One of our kids asked this next question. Got this question. It is, um, it's the question about the creator. Alex, there it is. If God created everything, then who created it? One of our kids didn't text in. One of our kids in the church just asked us that right before church. So she's here to see. Well, I'll tell them. But here's one thing I want to, because it's a kid, I want down to this level. All right. You see that keyboard right over here. Isn't it amazing that that keyboard just appeared? No, that keyboard was manufactured. And on the back of it, we can actually, we can actually, if there's a signature on the back uh, and a serial number, we can actually trace down the exact city, state, factory that this keyboard was made. We can actually trace down the person that assembled this keyboard. And we can even go beyond that. We can find the first person that created this model and every sound that's in it. We can find that, right? Because there is a creator, right? You can, you can trace back and find the creator. That's how life works in the world, right? You cut down a tree. It says it's this many years old. You count the rings and you actually know. You know how old that tree is. You go, this tree was created this many years ago. And you understand that every, everything in creation screams information about creation. And it screams about a creator. So, if God created everything. So, the, the premise is, yeah, I believe God created everything. But I, I kind of want to somebody create God. Well, then show me the evidence that somebody created God. If, if God created everything here, but then God is like middle management all of a sudden, that would be 
first. God, God would never use second middle management. But imagine if there's somebody, if there is somebody greater than God, then where's the evidence of that? Because is there evidence of our God that created the world? Everywhere. The heavens declare the glory of God. You can't even look up in the sky and not have your heart come alive and your soul come alive that God is a God who created everything. So, follow, follow, follow. You can follow the science. I believe the science leads to God. I believe it does. Follow the information. Follow your dream in it. Follow, follow your passion to meet God. And you know who you'll meet? You'll meet exactly Him. You'll meet God. If there, is, if there was a God above God, that is totally not anywhere in the Bible. But I want to tell you, we have a God who wants to meet you. And you can find Him. This other God that you're trying to dream of, I don't know if you'll ever find him. You can find this God. His name is Jesus. He loves you so much he came to earth so that you can find him. We got one more question tonight. It's 6.50. We're going to be praying in just a moment. What is your interpretation of the biblical definition of humility? So that's a, that, the, one of the problems with humility is you've got the word like pride, right? And I won't get into like pride month arguments of but people are, what, what is pride? Is, is, it, is pride, is there ever a moment where you can like proud that you did something and like stuff like that? Can you just be happy? You know, I won something. Can I be kind of happy that I won something? I want to tell you, that's not what pride is. That's not what pride is. And what, let's get right to the question is what, what is humility? Well, in the Greek and uh, in, in the Hebrew, let's start in the Hebrew. In Hebrew, they use words like gentle, kind, and meek to describe humility. Meek's one of those words most people don't know what it means. Meek, it does not mean Most people see the word meek and think it's weak. Meek, actually, the definition of meek uh, is that is strength that is controlled. It is strength under uh, control. So, like, uh, if I were just uh, going crazy on a forklift, right, and uh, I've got this forklift and it's like, Runs through that uh, that wall completely out of control, and I've got all this power of this forklift, and I run through that out of control. That's a lot of power, but it's not out of control. But it's out of control. That's not meekness. Meekness would be what if I could take that fork and, with the control of that power, go over here and pick up a quarter with that fork. That is taking that power. And putting it under control. So humility is like that. It doesn't mean you're weak. It means that you're powerful, but you're under control. You, you don't let anger rule you. You don't let, let uh, jealousy rule you. You don't let hatred rule you. You let love, you let gentleness, you let humility work in your life. The Greek word, uh, the Greek word is like a two-part, it's like two words kind of stuck together. And it means low. Like base, low, down, low, understanding. Low understanding. What is that saying? It means that you have a lower understanding of yourself. Not that you raise yourself up above everyone else, but you actually you actually lower yourself where? Below God. Lower yourself to meet others. Lower yourself to serve others. That's humility. That's humility. All right, the proper view of God, I would say it like this, my, my final answer on this. The proper view of God 
and others what humility is. That God is so high above us, we realize we are not like the most high, the lowest. But here's the other thing. Others, don't look down on others either. No, you come down to where they are and you meet eye to eye in that humility. So you have a proper view of others and God. Now, Satan doesn't have either of those things. Satan doesn't have humility. He has pride. He is the one who utters these words. He says, I will be like the most high. I will ascend my throne to the highest heaven. That's what he says, right? And so he believes he is equal to or better than God. And he definitely knows for a fact, just believes it, that he is better than you in every way. That's not humility. He doesn't have a proper view of who God is, he is, who others are. That's a lack of humility. We're going to be gathering for prayer. If you want prayer in this place, we want to pray with you. We've just received the word of God in a very different way, but I want us to take a few moments. I want us to talk to God. If you need a prayer uh, partner in this place, I want you to come to the first. For more information about redemption, look us up online at redemption-church.com. We want to hear from you, so be sure to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or even our anonymous question text line at 214-856-0550. Thank you for joining us and have a blessed day.